Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Making Claims from the Coca Fields, Women's Autonomy, and the Colombian National Strike. Our opening song is Seban Ban Ban, They'll Go Away, by La Batucada Guariche. Throughout 2019, an unprecedented amount of massive protests, marches, and strikes occurred in various countries throughout Latin America and the Caribbean, all commonly giving voice to the sharp inequality throughout these societies that has been produced by the increasing austerity of economic policy modeled on neoliberalism. While similar to these examples, Colombia nevertheless offers a unique case, being the country with the highest inequality in terms of land distribution in all of Latin America and having the largest internal population displacement in the world. This has largely been an effect of the armed conflict in Colombia that has lasted for over five decades between the Colombian government and the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. On top of claiming over 220,000 lives, the armed conflict has also resulted in the intense militarization of the government and the frequent repression of social groups fighting for alternative forms of Colombian citizenship. The U.S. has played a heavy role in aiding the Colombian government in a deadly war on drugs through financial and policy assistance, most notably with the implementation of Plan Colombia from the early 2000s. In 2016, the Colombian government and the FARC signed an historic peace agreement which called for a ceasefire and the laying down of arms, among other things. But the Colombian government has been slow and largely ineffective in implementing the policies laid out in the peace agreement, and in many instances has continued to deepen social, economic, and political inequality for many Colombian citizens. The Colombian national strike, which began November 21st of 2019, comes in this context, originating as a response to a set of tax reforms proposed by the current Colombian president, Ivan Duque, and expanding to include a wide range of demands by a vast coalition of Colombian citizens. In today's interchange, we'll offer a particular angle from which to view the national strike, the peace accords, and Plan Colombia, that of the Cocalera, particularly the women who work in the coca fields in places like Putumayo. Show producer Cole Nelson was joined in the WFHB studios by Margarita Martinez-Osario, co-author of Voices from the Coca Fields, a 2018 report issued by the Colombian Social Justice and Human Rights Organization De Justicia. The report focuses on the socioeconomic situations of women coca growers faced with the triple burden of care, community, and productive labor, all while navigating the stigma of criminality given them by the Colombian state due to their association with an illicit crop. And now, making claims from the coca fields on Interchange on WFHB. All right, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to talk about Colombian National Strike for a U.S. audience. Uh, I'm Margarita Martinez-Osorio. I'm a second-year PhD student uh, in Indiana University in the Latin American History Program. I'm from Colombia. I worked, uh, when I lived in Colombia, I worked in an NGO of human rights called the Justicia, and I will be very excited to talk about uh, our research there during the peace process. Can you give us a little context to the national strike and how it's how it's actually playing out? In Colombia, there have 
been a few national strikes um, in which sectors such as teachers, students, uh, unions go to the streets and stop like the activity uh, of the cities or the cities uh, during one day or whatever time it takes. So there was a national strike on 1977, uh, which was of teachers, peasants, unions, students. It was, it was very, very big. And it ended with the um, Julio Cesar Turbaya Yala's government decree to protect national security, which caused a lot of arbitrary detentions, tortures, and killings of union members, of leftist uh, organizations, and of LGBTQ community and peasants. So, so this this is like a, a national strike that took place before this one. Since then, a lot of public manifestations uh, have taken place in Colombia. But this national strike is particular because it started on November 21st, but it lasted until today and is, is still on. So it's not over. What does this mean? Uh, during the November 21st, uh, people go uh, went uh, on the streets to claim against the tax reform that the government uh, was planning to apply, to implement, and but also against a lot of demands from the implementation of the peace process because this government hasn't shown commitment to implement the peace process. And there are a lot of different demands uh, along these lines. As I said, this strike is particular because it has lasted a lot of time uh, compared to the other mobilizations. I'm curious to ask you about the diversity of claims and demands being made by um, various groups associated with the national strike and taking part in the national strike um, and sort of what challenges or potential strengths that, that poses in the momentum of this mobilization. Well, the big challenge is to have a single or a, um, or a or a more unified set of demands. Because right now, I, I don't know, I, I read, I think, in a national newspaper that the strike committee had over 300 demands. So, um, so for example, at first it was the tax reform, which is still there because the government just approved it. But then the extrajudicial killings, because during the days of the strike, the HEP, which is the institution uh, who ha that has in charge the judicial situation of uh, former guerrilla members, revealed how paramilitary, no, how the army killed thousands or hundreds of peasants to, to increase the number of combat killings. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is making claims from the coca fields. Show producer Cole Nelson and guest Margarita Martinez-Osorio discussed the women who gain economic autonomy and social mobility as a link in the chain of cocaine production within the context of the ongoing Colombian national strike against the austerity measures and authoritarian militarism of the Duque government. 
So, so during the presidency of Alvaro Uribe Vélez, uh, there was this security policy that that was aimed to com to combat guerrillas and to eliminate uh, the guerrilla forces in the country. So in order to increase the numbers of uh, guerrilla members killed, the army killed peasants. Some of them were uh, had disabilities. Some of them had, uh, were in positions of vulnerability, and they put them guerrilla clothes. They were passed as guerrilla members killed in combat. So that's horrible. Uh, again, I don't have words to describe how horrible is this. And during the strike, uh, this institution of the peace accords revealed a common grave, mm -hmm. mass grave, mm -hmm. with all the bodies of this peasant killed during by the army during the um, the presidency of Alvaro Uribe Vélez. So, um, so that's another demand because uh, the mothers of this peasant are claiming justice. To show you the diversity of the demands, last week Uber Uber drivers uh, joined the national strike because the president um, cancelled Uber in Colombia. So that is the diversity of the national strike demands from armed conf conflict, structural issues to tax reform, which is also structural to Uber drivers claiming uh, to go back to work. So I think that the diversity has uh, made strong the claims of the strike, but it's also uh, risky because there is not a unified like agenda or set of claims. So I, I don't know what's happening in the future, but again, I think that more than measure this in terms of concrete or real government uh, modifications or transformations, uh, we, can, we can also measure this in terms of subjectivities and how this is changing us and is changing our approach to the countryside, is changing our approach to government, is also exposing how the state has been a repressive agent, uh, not only now, because this is not new story. This has happened in the countryside for years, but now we are seeing this how this is happening in the cities, for example, with the death of Dylan Cruz. This has happened also in the past, but again, I think this, this strike is exposing us, this repressive state, which has been uh, at the base of many politics and approaches of the state to the citizens. You mentioned previously um, a national strike committee. Uh, who, how was that formed and who's, who's sort of participating in that committee? Uh, at first, unions, mm, but during the strike and as the strike went on, for example, uh, teachers joined, university teachers, uh, students joined, and peasants joined. Uh, this week, there was a meeting, a huge meeting in Bogota of peasant women to join to the national strike, so they, they made like some claims. So so the committee is also growing uh, with the time. At first, it was just the unions because the strike was about the tax reform, but now, now it's growing. And the president, uh, during the first week of, weeks of the strike, said that he was willing to 
make a conversation, but this didn't happen because the death of Dylan Cruz and how government always sent the riot police to repress the mobilizations. So one of the big demands right now is eliminating the SMAT because the SMAT is literally a police that repress riots and strikes. So so one of the big demands uh, of the committees, we are not going to to come to have a conversation with the government if the government does not uh, stop or eliminate the smart. It's time for a break. When a journalist asked Colombian President Duque about revelations that children were killed by the army, he answered, what are you talking about? This song is called De Esto Te Hablamos. This is what we're talking about. When we return, we'll look at the human rights abuses committed by the ESMAD, or the Colombian riot police. Stay with us on Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is about the diversity of claims against the neoliberal Duque government and the ongoing national strike in Colombia. In this segment, Margarita Martinez-Osario talks about the need to dismantle the ESMAD, the Mobile Anti-Disturbances Squadron, a Colombian National Police Riot Control Unit formed in 1999, charged with preventing and or controlling public disturbances and riots, as well as controlling large masses of people. On the point of ESMAT, there's, I, I remember in early December, there is video footage um, that w- circulated of an unmarked vehicle that was driven by ESMAT members um, kidnapping a woman and driving away with her. And, um, a, you know, a citizen driving his car recorded the entire thing and followed them down until finally they stopped the car and the woman escaped and she, she ran out. Um, but this isn't a unique occurrence, it seems. This is a pretty standard tactic of the SMAT. And in addition, this this past mobilization on January 21st, there was an additional 4,000 um, police brought to, is it Bogota alone, that the additional SMAT members were um, were mobilized to suppress the, the protests and, and the marches on 
the 21st? Desmad, uh, Desmad is not only uh, working in Bogota, Desmad like has uh, made presence make presence in in all Colombia in in the whole country actually the cocalera women also talk about this mat and how they participated in coca strikes uh, which is another interesting and fascinating story the the coca strikes during the 90s and uh, this mat has always been the repressive force of the state aimed to repress uh, public mobilizations. So what is also interesting but also um, concerning about this math is that uh, the video you're talking about, these arbitrary detentions uh, have happened in the country from a long time ago. So for example, in 1978, the then president Julio Cesar Turbayayala approved um, a law, a decree to protect national security, but this decree uh, gave the military forces total control over issues of public order. So at this time, there is a, a very interesting book, a very good book from historian Juan Pablo Aranguren, and the book shows how this decree prompted arbitrary detentions, tortures, and extrajudicial killings by the army during the 70s, the 80s, and so on. So um, what we're seeing now uh, through the social media, I, I think social media has a huge role in all this process, but what we're seeing now has happened in the country from a long time ago. There are numbers, there are cases, there are testimonies. Uh, most of them from the 70s are in, in international amnesty records. So this has happened in the country from a long time ago. Um, now we have social media, so now the citizens can record what's happening and that that is actually a tool of empowerment for us because, as you saw in that video, the woman was released because the, the man who was recording the whole situation pressed and pushed the police to liberate her. But this is... This is an arbitrary attention. Uh, this is very serious because it was the police in a particular car kidnapping a woman and a man, a man. So this is not new, but I think social media has had a big role in exposing this situation right now. In 2019 alone, was it over 200 social leaders were yeah. um, were killed? Um, and just this month, just in 2020, over 20. Um, social leaders have been murdered. Yeah, uh, one social leader, one social leader is murdered by day mm -hmm. since the beginning of this year. Uh, so the problem, the problem is structural, mm -hmm. and I think that the national strike—it's a unique, or maybe not a unique, but an, a crucial opportunity to um, to face and to oppose and to shed light on how. The state has been a repressive force for many citizens in Colombia. Does the government have any sort of recognition in general of the killing of social leaders, or is it a topic that isn't touched upon at all? The current president, every time a social leader is killed, uh, he does like an uh, announcement saying that he's going to uh, open an investigation and open a national discussion on this topic, but there are not real measures against this phenomenon. 
so that's that's one of the of the things that make us angry <laughs> because we're talking about angry <laughs> we're angry we're angry and and for example i i think this killing of social leaders was uh, a big reason for a national strike to be this huge you're listening to interchange on wfhb our show is making claims from the coca fields Show producer Cole Nelson and guest Margarita Martinez-Osorio discussed the women who gain economic autonomy and social mobility as a link in the chain of cocaine production within the context of the ongoing Colombian national strike against the austerity measures and authoritarian militarism of the Duque government. At first, uh, the national strike was proposed as a public manifestation against a tax reform. So it was proposed that a public manifestation on November 21st uh, will take place against the tax reform. But weeks before that day, something happened that I think was a, a very big motivation for people to go on the streets. And it was that eight or 18, we don't know uh, for sure, children were killed by the army. And these children have been, had been victims of forced recruitment by FARC guerrilla dissidents. And the human rights offices from the government knew about this forced recruitment that were, uh, were taking place in the region where this whole thing happened. But the army still killed the children. So it was a massacre. And a senator uh, in Colombia made this public in a debate in the Congress. And I think that was shocking and devastating for all of us. I, I was in Bogotá during the holidays. And you see in the streets like murals allusive to the children killed by the army. And this is not the only case. We also found out about... How, how the paramilitary forces and the army, uh, for example, created a WhatsApp group for killing former guerrilla members of the FARC. So I, I don't have words to express the feelings because, yeah, there is no words. And I think that this is a huge motivation for the strike because there are human rights violations taking place in front of our eyes and the government is doing nothing about it. When a journalist asked President Duque about the killings of children, he said, De que me hablas viejo? which can be translated as, what, what are you talking about? And he hasn't said anything about these killings. So I think that is a, a huge motivation for a national strike. And in a lot of ways, there are really no words of response to a massacre like that. And the only proper response is something like a national strike for people to take to the streets and mobilize in that way to express their intense anger and dissatisfaction with the with the current government. And I think that the peace process opened the space to go to the streets and claim and demand that a change is needed. So, so I think we should frame the national strike in Colombia in the frame of the peace process. Because for the first time, or not for the first time, we ha we've had peace processes before, but I think this is an opportunity to deal with the structural violence 
problems in the countryside, for example, uh, and to and to talk about that in the public spaces. So um, I was uh, in Bogota during the holidays and I visited Dylan Cross Memorial uh, in the place where he was shot by the riot police in Bogota. Uh, Dylan Cruz was a was a protester, uh, a young uh, protester who was killed by the SMAT, which is the riot police in Colombia, um, in front of our eyes again. So, so people made like a memorial in the place where Dylan Cruz was shot. It is a very meaningful experience to go there. I was with my sister and we were like standing in front of the memorial and people gathered around it. People put flowers on the memorial and people have conversation that I've never heard before in a space like that. Uh, so for example, we were there and a woman approached to us and she said, uh, my son was killed like Dylan. And you heard the conversation next to you, uh, people talking about the falsos positivos, the extrajudicial killings committed by the National Army. And then you heard about, uh, so what is happening with the social leaders? So so I, I think this is a very important legacy that we might not understand right now, uh, because we're living in the moment, but maybe with some distance, we we will be able to measure or to gauge the extent to which this strike changes and changed uh, our subjectivities and our approach to to the armed conflict in Colombia and to the to the pain to the wants uh, that we had. So I, I think this strike is opening opportunities to talk about that, and I think that by itself is very important. Uh, the government is not listening. The, the national strike at first was aimed against the tax reform. The tax reform was approved during the holidays at two in the morning. The national strike also demanded the human rights approach to the drug illicit problem. And the decree of glyphosate was approved on the holidays, during the holidays too. So the government is not listening. Uh, the government is not like taking, taking real me- measures to deal uh, with the strikes demands. But I think uh, if you ask me <laughs> about the, the significance of the strikes, I will say that in terms of subjectivities, uh, something is changing. Uh, and I think that the legacies of the national strike might be found in that realm, maybe not in the government realm, but maybe in the, in the, in the relationships between people, in, in how we talk about the armed conflict, in how we talk about the countryside from the cities, in how we, we see the countryside, in how we see peasant people, in how peasant people see us in the city. So I think in terms of subjectivity, the national strike has legacies that are important. It's time for another break. On November 27th, 2019, in Bogota, in the middle of a caseralazzo, where people bang pots and pans from their windows and on the street, some musicians joined in to play Colombia Tierra Querida, a classic of popular music in Colombia. This is Matilda Diaz with Lucha Bermudez and his orchestra. Stay with us for more on the national strike and the cocalera when Interchange returns. Colombia Tierra Querida, hijo de fe y armonía. 
Cantemos, cantemos todos gritos de paz y alegría Vivemos, siempre vivemos a nuestra patria querida Su suelo es una oración y es un canto de la vida Cantando, yo viviré, Colombia, tierra querida. Cantando, cantando, yo viviré, Colombia, tierra querida. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. In this segment, show producer Cole Nelson asks Margarita Martinez Osorio about her work on Voices from the Coca Fields, a 2018 report issued by De Justicia, a Colombian social justice and human rights organization. The report centers on women coca growers and the ways agricultural substitution programs might serve to reduce the rights of these women through a loss of economic autonomy. Can you talk about your work with um, Justicia and sort of what the organization is doing? Okay, so the Justicia is a think tank of human rights. You know that in Colombia we are facing a peace process that is aimed to seal a conflict of at least 50 years uh, of duration. So um, the peace process started, I mean, the negotiations between the former president, Juan Manuel Santos, and the FARC guerrilla started in 2012. And these negotiations involved uh, civil society in many ways. They had a particular key role uh, to the victims of the armed conflict. So the victims were part, an active part of the negotiations between the government and the FARC guerrilla. And the, in 2016, the negotiations created a peace accord and there was a plebiscite, a referendum in Colombia uh, in which we, the common population, were supposed to vote in favor or against uh, the peace accords. The population voted no I mean, voted against the peace accords. The negotiation table had to do some arrangements and some modification to the initial accord. And finally, in 2016, uh, the final peace agreement was signed. And our work in the Justicia frames within this uh, peace agreement. I mean, the Justicia is uh, an organization of more than 10 years of existence. But the work during these years was focused on helping to implement or to give tools, methodological and analytical tools, to implement the peace accord. Since 2016, uh, we've worked particularly, I was in, in the gender area of this organization. The gender area agreed with the drug policy area of the Justicia to contribute to a study the socioeconomic conditions of women coca growers in Putumayo, which is a region in southern Colombia. Putumayo is known by its pre- 
by the presence of illicit crops. And Putumayo was like a big space where the Plan Colombia, which was a plane aimed at combating the drug trafficking in Colombia, had a lot of presence, made a lot of presence in Putumayo. So um, so we, we work with Cocalera women. And, and why women? Because women are not the only ones who grow coca in Colombia. It's an activity uh, that men and women are equally engaged, but there are few studies on the particular condition that women coca growers face. So we wanted to hear their voices. As the title of the book says, Voices from the Coca Fields, we wanted to hear their stories because we, we think that their stories matter and they need to be heard in order to implement in a good way the peace process. So we, we heard her voices. They were actually very eager to talk because since the the war on drugs, their voices have been silenced from the state narratives. What we heard in Bogota and I suppose here in the US too is that being a coca grower is a bad activity because it's made by criminals. So against this narrative of criminals and persecution to the coca growers, uh, these women showed us that they are rural uh, people they are mothers, they are human beings that are struggling to feed their families in a context in which they have no schools. They lived in rural areas distant from the urban centers, so they have no access to schools, they have no access to health, they have no access to roads, and the coca growing was an activity that supplied all of these demands. So the aim of this research was to put uh, like a human face on these subjects, these subjects that are deemed uh, as criminals and in Colombia's guerrilla members sometimes. So we wanted to show to be a, a medium through which these voices could be heard. This project uh, that you worked on and co-authored, uh, Voices from the Coca Fields, um, you highlight the various ways that these women, these, these women coca growers are... Um, victimized, criminalized, um, subjugated to, you know, state repression. And at the very same time, through their, their association with coca cultivation, are able to sustain themselves, are able to, um, through affiliation with this economy, they're able to um, provide themselves with basic necessities. So I was curious how, how these women sort of negotiate that relationship with coca cultivation, where it is quite ambivalent. Yeah, uh, it is ambivalent, as you said, uh, because on the one side, the coca for them was a means for living and for sustaining their families. So they are not rich people uh, because in Colombia, I don't know if, they, if, if in the US too, but in Colombia it prevails a narrative that says that everyone who is engaged with the drug market or the, or, or, or the drug chain is rich and that's a lie. These women are not rich, but the coca cultivation allow them some kind of social mobility. So, for example, most of these women are campesinas, rural rural women who, who didn't have access to education, for example, but through the coca, they were able to, to pay for their sons and daughters' education, for example. So that's, that's huge. Uh, they were able to build uh, schools in their, in their own communities. They were able to build roads because these, these regions usually are isolated from the urban, city, urban centers because they don't have roads to communicate. So the coca provided 
them with some kind of social mobility. But in terms of gender, we can say that the coca also provided them with autonomy. So most of these women uh, suffered domestic violence. For example, they were in abusive relationships and with their crops, with their coca crops, they were able to get out of these abusive relationships. And that's, again, it's huge because when we think about a substitution program, we should think about that too. We should think about how, how do we guarantee for these women a crop or another activity that provides them with the same resources that the COCA is providing, is providing in, in this case. So a, a huge challenge of a substitution program will, in terms of gender will be that the activity that these women do for surviving doesn't translate in their lose of autonomy and in the lose of autonomy that, the, that they've gained with the coca crops. So they are not rich, they are not uh, like this image of, of Paulo Escobar and these like big faces of the drug uh, market, they are not these people, but it is true that the coca gave them some basic resources to survive and to gain social mobility and in terms of gender to gain autonomy from abusive relationships and some kind of empowerment uh, in that sense. So yeah, that these are like some of the big challenges of a substitution program that we don't lose uh, the things they've gained through the coca. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is making claims from the coca fields. Show producer Cole Nelson and guest Margarita Martinez-Osorio discussed the women who gain economic autonomy and social mobility as a link in the chain of cocaine production within the context of the ongoing Colombian national strike against the austerity measures and authoritarian militarism of the Duque government. Can you um, give sort of a brief history of um, crop substitution programs and how they relate to the peace agreements? Yeah, so the peace agreement since the beginning aimed to deal with big issues and inequalities in Colombia and countryside because the negotiations uh, between the government and the FARC guerrilla recognized that a big part of the conflict in Colombia was due to inequalities in the countryside. So, for example, the FARC guerrilla at first was a um, peasant uh, guerrilla. So the, the peace agreement aimed to deal with these huge and big issues and structural issues of inequality in the country. So one of these structural issues is, of course, the illicit drugs market. So the, the peace agreement proposed uh, a substitution program that deemed uh, the illicit drug trafficking as a problem of human rights more than as a problem of criminal markets. Yet, I, I need to like to be clear in this, uh, the peace agreement also aims to combat like criminality and has like this approach, this military approach against uh, criminality in the drug market. So the substitution program uh, basically promised uh, to build roads, to build uh, like means for the countryside to communicate with the urban centers because this is one of the big problems of a crop substitution program because the coca is an easy product to trade and to sell. Uh, it's not heavy, so peasants can carry the coca in their bags and it's not 
heavy. So, for example, from the countryside where they grow coca to the urban center, they may take seven hours or six hours walking. Uh, so coca is an easy product to carry. But if you say, for example, that you're substituting coca with plantains, plantains are very difficult to carry by shoulder during this amount of time. And the same happens with other products. And plantains, for example, they get damaged during the journey. So for a substitution program to succeed, it's necessary to build roads. That's one of the of the main claims of a substitution program. So, so the substitution program was strongly attached and linked to the agrarian reform because, for example, peasants need land, right, to, to grow other crops. Peasants need roads, again, peasants need, need guarantees that their products are going to be sold in the market because, of course, coca is sold in the market easily, <laughs> in the illegal market, but, but platanes are not or other products are not. So, so the substitution program is attached to um, a set of reforms in the countryside. So it's, a, it's a strongly attached with the agrarian reform that is taking place in Colombia with the peace accords. The problem with this is this is not an easy task to implement. And this government hasn't been committed with the implementation of the agrarian reform. And actually, social leaders that claim for land, for example, or that are in favor of the substitution programs are being killed by paramilitary forces. So, so currently, there is no guarantee that this substitution program is going to work. And during the holidays, uh, Duque's government backed up, but the United States government approved a decree that allowed aerial spraying with glyphosate again. So um, what scholars have said about glyphosate is that first, uh, it produces cancer, it is poison, and second, that you can't apply a substitution program uh, that you expect to succeed if at the same time you are poisoning rural people's crops. Because with the aerial spraying, they don't kill only the coca crops, but they kill also the other crops that peasants have. So you're not only poisoning people with this glyphosate, but you're also poisoning their food and the other crops that they may have. So at, at this time, it's very difficult to expect that the substitution program is going to work if at the same time you are using glyphosate to eliminate the coca crops. Scholars agree it's not going to work uh, because this happened with the Plan Colombia during the 2000s that promised to eliminate the coca crops in the country. And the main politics of the Plan Colombia was aerial spraying uh, through glyphosate and it didn't work. Uh, the coca crops are still in Colombia because the coca crops are the sustainers and are crucial for the sustainment of uh, peasant families in many places of Colombia. And if you don't supply those needs, uh, you are not going to eliminate the coca crops. Somos pueblos, somos almas, somos nido. Somos cantos, somos danzas, somos ríos. Somos los colores del legado de un país. Somos sueños que se plasman con la tinta de vivir. It's time for our final break. This is Somos Artistas, No Terroristas. 
a response to government stigmatization of the protesters. More voices from the national strike in Colombia when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. For this final segment, episode producer Cole Nelson asks Margarita Martinez-Osorio about the effects of Plan Colombia on the women coca growers in Puerto Mayo. Plan Colombia was a United States foreign aid, military aid, and diplomatic initiative ostensibly aimed at combating the drug cartels and the FARC in Colombia. The plan was originally conceived in 1999 by the administrations of Colombian President Andres Pastrana and U.S. President Bill Clinton and signed into law by the United States in 2000. I'd like to touch upon Plan Colombia um, because just recently, as you may know, the current, um, one of the current Democratic candidates, presidential candidates in the U.S., Joe Biden, um, in an interview with CNN, is boasting about his role in implementing and in um, drafting Plan Colombia. Um, and that's something that he clearly has a lot of pride behind. It's something, it's one of the many problematic things that Biden's name is attached to. Um, I'm interested, in addition to um, fumigation, aerial fumigation, um, what, other, what are the other effects of Plan Colombia on um, rural cultivators, um, campesinas, and and the women that you researched? Yeah, um, that's um, a good question. The Plan Colombia built upon the discourse and the narrative of the war on drugs. And this, in this narrative, the prevalent approach is to criminalize our, and persecute of individuals at each le level of the drug chain, uh, production, traffic, and consumption. In this uh, narrative, the measure of success is by counting the number of hectares sprayed with glyphosate. So it's by counting the number of hectares of coca eradicated. But again, uh, for example, in Voices from the Coca Fields, we wanted to put a human face to this process. Because when you, by decree, approved aerial fumigation, uh, that means that you're poisoning people and that you're poisoning their food. So I know that, for example, the Justicia right now is doing an informative video or podcast, I'm not sure, about the effects of glyphosate in the lives of people. When we conducted the oral narrative, the oral interview, sorry, um, women talked about uh, abortion, for example. Women talked about cancer, but they also talk about abortion, and that relationship needs to be clarified. They said that uh, glyphosate, a real spring, caused abortions. There is no research about this, but I think that the fact that they mentioned that uh, is important for us to take into account when we are measuring and assessing the effects of glyphosate on their lives. 
So the plan Colombia built upon this idea that the success of the war on drugs was measured by the number of hectares. And scholars have said that the achieved is needed in that approach because the success of a substitution program will be the, the improvement of social conditions of peasant people who live from the coca crops. So when we're talking about Plan Colombia, we also need uh, to talk about military intervention because in the case of Plan Colombia, the, um, uh, the Plan Colombia not only came with glyphosate, but also with an increasing on military presence in areas of the country as Putumayo, as Caquetá, and other uh, parts of the country with high levels of coca fields. So what uh, does militarization mean for the lives, uh, for example, of women? Uh, studies, for example, of Kimberly Taydon, an anthropologist, have shown how uh, military presence increased the levels of sexual violence for women, for example, increased the levels of toxic and military masculinities uh, models in the rural areas of the country. And in the oral interviews uh, that appear in Voices from the Coca Fields, these women emphasized on how military intervention meant sexual violence, intimidation, and repression on their families and on their own bodies. So um, not only the military, but also the paramilitary intervention to guarantee like um, a status quo in terms of gender. So, for example, paramilitaries had very uh, strong and normative ideas on how gendered bodies should act. Uh, and everybody that was deemed as a deviation from that norm was persecuted, killed, criminalized. So we should talk about that too, how the Plan Colombia and the war on drugs narrative not only came in the form of glyphosate, uh, which is very problematic by itself, but also in the form of military intervention and how that, have, that has impacts on the bodies and on the lives of women. And, and that's something that... Um, as you say, we, we need to talk about and that's something in the conversation and the policy around uh, crop substitution programs is largely absent, is the, the gender dynamic on, on, and the sort of differential effect of these crop substitution programs on the lives of women. Um, and quite wonderfully, the, the research that, that you collected in um, Voices from the Cocoa Fields ends with policy recommendations. Um, I was curious if you can take us through a couple of those recommendations. Yeah, sure. So in terms of gender, one recommendation is that a substitution program cannot risk the autonomy that women gained with the coca crops. So the risk with the substitution is that, for example, women had to uh, women be forced to come back to their abusive relationships and to their dependence on men's income. So that's like a big recommendation in these terms. The second recommendation, which may sound obvious, but glyphosate is not the answer. It's not working. Uh, the drug market is not is not weak because of the glyphosate and areal spraying and and a human rights approach needs to be seriously taken into account uh, when we're talking about drug market not only in the production stage but also in the trafficking stage and also in the consumption stage these histories uh, matter because the war on drugs is not about numbers it's not only about numbers the war on drugs is not only about 
about how many hectares were eradicated. The war on drugs is about the subjects and the human subjects that are uh, behind this change, this chain of trafficking. And I, I want to, to quote like some of them women's interviews because they emphasized on how decisions on their lives were taken either on Bogota by politicians of Bogota, men politicians usually, but also by the United States government in a language that they don't understand in a country they haven't visited. So so they, they always said like our lives are being defined by these people uh, in the urban centers and in the in the United States. So this is a problem on a transnational level because if we don't make changes on how the politics from the United States is defined, it is difficult to make changes in the Colombian uh, context. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is making claims from the coca fields. Show producer Cole Nelson and guest Margarita Martinez-Osorio discussed the women who gain economic autonomy and social mobility as a link in the chain of cocaine production within the context of the ongoing Colombian national strike against the austerity measures and authoritarian militarism of the Duque government. I think it's very important for people in the U.S. to know where the coca comes from, where the cocaine comes from. I wonder if the consumers here, for example, know that how, how a coca uh, field looks like. I wonder if they know how the voice of a coca lera woman sounds, uh, what are their stories. Their stories of violence, their stories of also of resistance, because the coca allowed them to build houses from scratch, the coca allowed them to build schools from scratch, and how it's, it's incredible to see how these women work every day, the amount of work they do every day, because they woke up in four in the morning and they go to bed at 11 at night, and they are always working, working for their families, working in the crops, not only in the coca crops, but also in the other crops to sustain their families with food. And they work in the household all the time, taking care of their children. And they work for their communities because they organized. Uh, the coca movement is strong uh, in the country, and, and a movement, a political movement requires time. And they they spend their time too uh, working for their communities. So, so I think it's important for the U.S. audience to hear these stories and to know where the cocaine comes from and what are those stories of violence, but also of resistance and of empowerment in many ways. Are there points you want to touch on with Voices from the Coca Fields in addition? There is a narrative, um, an scholarly narrative, but also a, a common people narrative that the state has been absent uh, from the countryside in Colombia and that that absence is one of the main reasons uh, of the armed conflict. However, uh, what we realized from the interviews and what other scholars such as Estefania Ciro have said is that the state hasn't been absent in Puto Mayo, for example, or hasn't been absent in the places where coca grows. The state has made a presence, but it has made a presence with an approach, a military approach to the people that criminalizes and persecutes peasants uh, who grow coca to survive. So the state has made a presence. And I think that coca women uh, have that very clear because uh, we applied a social cartography methodology. So they were asked to paint 
to draw their daily routines. And one of the questions we asked them for day to drown was how has the state made a presence in your region? And they draw army, glyphosate and paramilitaries. And that's very significant in this context, because if we want to build peace from the countryside in Colombia, we need to change that approach. The state cannot anymore deal with coca growers as criminals because they are human beings. So now that the national strike seems to be bringing into public conversation quite openly um, a number of structural and social issues that are faced by such a vast array of Colombian citizens, um, how, how, to you, how does it seem that this could be affecting positive, negatively um, the women coca growers that you've, that you've researched? I think that the strike could be a crucial opportunity to expose and to echo the voices from the coca fields because it's a crucial time where structural problems are being discussed. So I think we should consider to incorporate the coca growers' situation in that set of demands. Uh, however, uh, in the urban centers as Bogota, the voices from the coca field are still silenced and they, are, they do not seem to be a priority of government's policies, but also it's very difficult to incorporate these demands into the public agenda, for example, of civil society. However, strong efforts are being made by civil society organizations such as the Justicia, Corporación Humanas and other civil societies organizations are struggling to put these demands on the table and to give them a priority uh, because the, the drug problem in Colombia should be a priority, but from a human rights approach. So, so I think the national strike is an opportunity to strengthen these efforts. And, and I think that if something happens uh, in terms of public policy, this could make a huge difference. But again, when we talk about the drug problem in Colombia, we're talking about a transnational issue. So I think the United States has a big role in echoing these voices from the coca fields too. That's our show. We'll close with Para la Guerra, Nada, by Marta Gomez. This translates as, for the war, nothing. And the song is a gentle reminder of all the ways we can commit ourselves to life and joy instead of the destruction of war. Para el viento una cometa, para el lienzo un pincel, Para la siesta una maca, para el alma un pastel Para el silencio una palabra, para la oreja un caracol Un columpio para la infancia y al oído un acordeón Para la guerra nada Thanks to Margarita Martinez Osorio for insights into the Colombian national strike and for helping us hear the voices of the women who work in the coca fields in Putumayo. We also thank her for our music selections today. You can find out more about De Justicia by visiting the Interchange website, wfhb.org interchange. And thank you for listening. I'm your host, Doug Storm. Today's show was produced by Cole Nelson, a member of the Interchange Collective. Executive producer is Cade Young. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on Bloomington's community radio station, WFHB. Para el viento, un ringlete. Al olvido un papel, para amarte una cama, para el alma un café, para
para abrigarte una ruana y una vela para esperar un trompo para la infancia y una cuerda para saltar para la guerra nada más. 